0: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies.
1: Sometimes I come across things that uh, make me go, hmm, and I watched a documentary recently that did just that, and the documentary was about the medical device industry. And while the stories and and a lot of the information presented in this documentary are factual, it felt to me as though uh, the whole story uh, wasn't being told. And that's why I wanted to chat a little bit with Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, where he and I explore a few different perspectives Uh, to help give you a clear picture of the total story. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences is joining me today. Welcome, Mike. Thank
0: you, John. Always a pleasure to speak to
1: you and your audience. Well, Mike, uh, I know you and I pay attention to what's happening in our world and in the, in the medical device industry specifically and try to keep our finger on the pulse of, uh, well, I guess new and exciting and interesting things. And recently, there was a documentary that that came out that featured the medical device industry. And I know you and I both had a chance to uh, watch that. And I thought we would take a few minutes to to talk about that because... Um, My opinion after watching that documentary, uh, I think it only sh- showed one side of the story. What do you think?
0: Well, I think you're exactly right, John. Uh, I think it was a factual accounting, but I definitely think it was one side. Unfortunately, the makers of the documentary, and this is not a, necessarily a criticism, but merely an observation, um, they focused on... A few medical devices that happen to be permanent implants that did happen to cause harm to people. In some cases, lots of people. But what they neglected to say anything about was all of the really great medical devices out there, uh, that are helping people every single day. So to use a, uh, a metaphor from Fox News, I think it's important to have a, a fair and balanced view of, uh, of our industry
1: yeah i totally agree and the stories that were were in that documentary and i do applaud the the makers of the documentary um because i think elevating these types of topics uh will you know start some conversations and you know conversations that like you and i are going to have today i think are a step to identifying where there might be opportunities for improvement i think it might be a way for us to to highlight some areas where there might be some systemic breakdowns, and you know, po- uh, pose some interesting questions about you know, do we need change? And I think I don't know that we're going to get into all of that today, but but I thought we would dive into some of that. I mean, first and foremost, it, it's very clear that that the some of the products that were featured there have been. You know, some very significant events and and my heart goes out to those patients and those families of those patients who have had to suffer uh, through these adverse events. I mean, as a medical device professional for over 20 years now, I assure you that my mission as a person, as somebody that works in this industry, is to improve the quality of life and to, to leave no stone unturned in that quest to make sure that the product that I bring to market is as safe and effective as possible.
0: Well, once again, John, you and I are singing exactly the same song. I could not agree more. Uh, Call me naive, but I think the solution to most problems is more communication, not less. And we need more people, not just within our industry, but in society at at large, you know, being aware of these things and we need these discussions. And regrettably, I would have to put uh, some of the blame of the one-sided approach to this particular documentary on ourselves, on our industry, because according to the video, both the FDA as well as all of the manufacturers that had devices uh, uh, portrayed in this video, they were all invited to participate and according to the uh, video, they all declined to be interviewed on camera. And call me naive, John, but again, how does that make a world, the world a better place Yeah, if we just simply have a, a one-sided uh, uh, accounting? I think we as industry professionals uh, have an obligation to get out there and at least tell our side of the story, so to speak, to try to provide, as I said, a fair and balanced approach. And one of the things that the video did do a good job, in my opinion, is putting a clinical face on the problem. This is the, a technique that I often use when I go to the FDA myself before, uh, you know, talking about our particular device, the engineering the 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 regulation, the biology, I will often put a picture of a patient on the on the screen, and I will say, "Meet Mary Smith before using our device. Mary Smith was not able to do x, y, and z now as a result of using our device, she is able to do x, y, and z. Some people you know accuse me of tugging on the emotional purse strings perhaps, and you know there's I can, I, I can see that point, but what i 'm also doing is i 'm reminding all of us. That we're not just talking about engineering or biology or regulation here. We're talking about people's lives. And so, uh, you know, simply put, as you said, you know, we have to remember not just the patients, but the families, the kids. We in this industry have a big responsibility. And, uh, you know, remember, if we don't do our jobs, remember the faces of those people that you're affecting.
1: For sure, for sure. And again, folks, I want to emphasize uh, that one of Mike's comments at the beginning of this podcast uh you know of course this this documentary did a a pretty decent job of highlighting some some products that are out there that have had some problems but um you know if you 're new to the medical device industry or or you're you're just curious about is this the norm uh, I assure you with hundred percent certainty, no, this is not the norm uh There are thousands and thousands and thousands of medical device products uh that are out there that are, are are changing humanity in a good way, and you know both Mike and myself have had the pleasure of working with many uh, companies who are really changing the uh, quality of life in a good way, so I do want to emphasize that, but Mike, as we talked today I, there's kind of a few areas that I want to explore a little bit. Uh, the documentary talked a little bit about five ten k PMA, uh, postulating that that getting medical devices to market might be uh, too easy. Um, kind of in line with that, there was some claim or some some idea uh, thrown out there that um, medical devices need more clinical data before going to market. I thought we would dive into that just a little bit. Um, I also want to explore um, a couple of things. You know, It seemed to me that in these cases that were highlighted, there were some systemic breakdowns of a company's quality system, specific, specifically in areas of complaints, MDRs, possibly CAPAs. I thought we would explore that a little bit. And then I thought we would wrap up today by... Um, exploring the question: Do we need more regulation to to make things better? Uh, I think I know your answer, but um, we'll we'll chat about that here in a moment. So, does that sound okay as uh, you know? I guess a rough agenda for our conversation.
0: I think that's terrific, John. I look forward to to being part of the discussion. Okay. All
1: right. So, the first thing: five ten k versus PMA. I mean, some of the devices that were featured. I mean, I think they all the the primary devices featured were all uh, implants. Well, three of the four were implants in nature. Um, and, you know, some were of the stories that were shared were some of these products probably should have gone the PMA path, but they went the 510k path and, you know, the 510k path is easy. I, I'm just curious. What, what are your comments about, about that in general?
0: Well listen let's be honest john i mean you know clearly the 510k uh, has a lower regulatory burden overall than the pma i mean i think it's i think it's difficult for anybody to to disagree with that does that mean that the 510k is a bad pathway to market absolutely not it's very appropriate for lots of different medical devices but regrettably it has been overused some companies will take advantage of what the Institute of Medicine called several years ago a a loophole in the law. And regrettably, sometimes FDA, especially in the past, has not pushed back on companies enough to, uh, you know, to require more. So, um, you know, so so five. So the 510K is uh, without a doubt. A lower regulatory burden, this is after all why the vast majority you know more than ninety five percent of medical devices come onto the market as you know under the five ten k and again there 's nothing wrong with that it 's perfectly appropriate for many medical devices, but certainly not all. On the other hand, when it comes to the pMA, the pMA is a more rigorous pathway to market. You and I have talked about this before it 's more similar to uh, what drug companies have to go through, although I still think it 's a bit of a stretch to equate a pMA to an NDA or a BLA for drugs or biologics, um, but it is a more rigorous pathway, but it is still not per- perfect. One of the examples uh, that was that was talked about in this particular video was a permanent implant for birth control that was brought onto the market under the pMA and yet it experienced a litany of problems. Uh, And as a result, it's being taken off the market here in the U.S. later this year. So, you know, some people, and there have been other examples, you know, uh, where where PMA products cause problems as well. So just because we have a higher regulatory burden, uh, PMA versus 510k, for example, doesn't necessarily mean that um, uh, that the device is is, uh, uh, is is safer. You know, you and I have talked about this before, John. Right. When a 510, when, sorry, when a company gets a 510K clearance when they get a a de novo or when they get an PMA approval when they become ISO blah 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 certified. That's the academic equivalent of being a C student. That just means that they're passing. That does not necessarily mean that they're that they're making a good product, that they're making a safer, effective product. And I think we as an industry need to set the bar higher. I hear a lot of people they talk about, you know, our goal is regulatory compliance. Well, in my opinion, or quality compliance for that matter, in my opinion, that's a pretty low place to set the bar. That's like, you know, my goal in this in this uh, college course is to get a seat. You know,
1: right. <laughs> I think right. we can do better than that. Right. Yeah. I'm drawn to a quote uh, that came from, from the documentary that came from Dr. David Kessler. Uh, Dr. Kessler was a former FDA commissioner. Uh, in the, um, um, from 1990 to 1997, and this quote is something along the lines of, when it comes to medical devices, we built a system that doesn't work. I, I mean, why, why did he say this, and do you agree? Well, I do
0: have a lot of respect for Dr. Kessler. Uh, you know, he and I have agreed on many things, certainly not all things. I also have a lot of respect for the current FDA commissioner as well, Scott Gottlieb, although in many ways the two are diametrically opposed. Um, look, the system is, is 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 not perfect, and this is another thing that gets frustrates me about some folks in our industry who seem to want to somehow pretend that the system is 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 not. Uh, broken, uh, that it cannot be improved. Uh, clearly there are improvements that can be made. No system, you know, we as engineers, we know we learned a long time ago, I think, that nothing is perfect. You can always figure out a way to make something better. And I think the regulatory and the quality systems are exactly the same. So I think what Dr. Kessler is, 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 is meaning there, and I think it's very interesting that a former FDA commissioner under both a Republican as well as a Democratic president, because he was commissioner for uh, for about eight years, makes such a statement publicly. I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to draw attention to this and maybe get more people, kind of like you and I are doing right now, at least talking about this. You know, is the system perfect? Where are the weaknesses? Where are the problems? And most importantly, what can we do to try to prevent them from happening in the future? Sure. You know, there's a fa- famous adage, John: "Those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it." <laughs> Regrettably, you know, this seems to happen over and over and over again.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, just hearing that um, comment, um, you know, at the, at the time I was listening to that, I was thinking, "Wait a minute!" There's there have been in recent years there have been a lot of of um, Movement on the side of of the agency to put in provisions that uh, I think are, are trying to improve the system now I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm right there with you But you and I have talked a lot about a pre submission. I mean one I would venture a guess that you know If all of these products that were featured if that pre submission program were in place at that time I guess maybe this is speculation uh, would these products have w- w- even been featured on a documentary? You know, would there have been these these big challenges if a pre-submission program had been in place? And I'm not saying a pre-submission submission is a uh, an end-all, be-all catch-all, but it seems to me that that's an, an example of how um, a program has been implemented that has, with the intent of improving the communication between industry and FDA.
0: Well. Uh, so, as, as 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 many in your audience know, John, you know I'm a huge fan of the pre-sub process. I was I'm down at the FDA at least once a month. Just last week, I had three pre-subs at FDA, it was just kind of coincidence. Um, so I'm a huge fan of the pre-sub process for lots of different reasons. Whether or not uh, if more companies would do a pre-sub would lead to, to fewer problems like the ones talked about in this particular documentary, I'm not sure. I think it would be difficult to, to connect those dots, although maybe you okay. could. But one other thing I got to just add, although the formal pre-submission process is relatively new, the initial guidance just came out a few years ago. Some of us, myself included, were having advanced communications pre-sub meetings, if you will, with the FDA 20 and 25 years ago. So there was not the formal process uh, that we have now, but uh, but sure. nonetheless, as I said earlier, you know, communication is is, uh, is a good thing.
1: Sure. A couple other things that kind of that, um, you know, I'll throw out there on this 510K PMA um, topic. Um you know, some of these devices, they're implant devices, and they were cleared by 510K. I mean, did, did that raise an eyebrow with you at all, or is that okay? I mean, what are your thoughts about that? Well, that's
0: a great question, John, and it's something that I've been talking about for many, many years. You know, there are a number of permanent implants that uh, are brought to market as a 510K. Uh, the orthopedic industry is fraught with them. Um, and one could easily ask the question, you know, should any permanent implant, and by the way, the regulatory definition of permanent is not what some people might think. You know, the regulatory definition of permanent means, uh, an indication greater than 29 days. So a permanent implant is not something that is designed to, to last your entire life, right? It's kind of, to quote a famous politician, sure. it kind of depends, it depends on what your definition of is, is. Um, so anyway, um, I'm sorry, John, I just had a mental hiccup. What
1: <laughs> Should well, um, orthopedics, are a good example, should orthopedic implants, something that is going to stay with that patient for the entirety of their life, uh, it, does a 510k path
0: for those yeah, products that, make sense? Th- thank you for the reminder. So, so yeah, one could easily ask the question, as a matter of law, should any permanent implant be allowed to be a 510k? Some people have made that suggestion, but I'm not a fan of universal regulation like that. I'm more of a fan of a case-by-case basis because I can tell you this, um, and I've asked this question in orthopedic companies, many of them are customers of mine, if uh, Congress or FDA decided to raise the bar and uh, require a PMA for the particular orthopedic implant or any, you know, uh, implant that you're working on that might be a, fi- a 510K, you know, a VNK a filter is another one and uh, pacing leads and so on. Um, if we were to raise the bar and require a PMA, how many of your programs would be canceled? Every single person in the room raised their hand. One person said uh, the program would be canceled today, right? So wow. this gets back to the whole balance between Regulation and innovation, you know, it's tempting to raise the regulatory burden to try to make products that are safe and effective. That's certainly an admirable goal. But on the other hand, if we raise it too much, then, you know, we run the risk of a company saying, you know what, it's just not worth it. Um, and uh, so as a result, you know, I said some columns a few years ago that actually got me invited to do a couple of presentations on Capitol Hill. And what I said was, it's one thing to, measure the number of people that are harmed or killed because they uh, use a medical device that is not safe enough, whatever that means. But how do we measure how many people are harmed or killed because they don't have access to a medical device? Because we've raised the regulatory burden to the point, as I said, where the company says, you know what, it's just not worth it for us to do. So this yeah, is a, really this is not a, these are not simple problems.
1: For sure. And um, I, th- I think kind of on that topic too. You know, I mentioned the clinical side of things. Um, there was uh, a statement or, or made actually a few times throughout the documentary that you know almost in disbelief that a medical device could get to market uh, without having uh, clinical data, uh, human clinical data. And you know, is that pragmatic? And does that make sense for for products? I mean, you know, what what happens if there's a knee jerk reaction to this, and and now all of a sudden. Companies are being asked to provide more human clinical data uh, to support their products getting into the market. I mean, I think you have. Well, you a, know, John, I think you have a case, don't you? Uh,
0: yes, and you know, John, that's exactly what's happening in the EU right now. Across the board, they are uh, expecting more clinical data, either pre- and/or post-market. Uh, in part, you know, for all of the reasons that we're talked about in this particular documentary. Whereas, in some ways, the U.S. right now is going in the opposite direction. When Scott Gottlieb, uh, I believe this past December, was out on the you know stump uh, talking about what he called the alternative 510k, uh, which basically is uh, is a is a reincarnation of the of the abbreviated 510k. Um, so whether or not you know all medical devices should require some clinical data, I'll leave that sort of as a rhetorical question. Uh, I personally, as a biomedical engineer, as I said, I do not like universal regulation like that. There are many medical devices where I think it is totally unnecessary to have clinical data. And in those situations, when FDA asks for clinical data, I will uh, very politely but also very strongly push back and say, look, clinical data is not necessary for all of the following reasons. You know, this, this is something that I do frequently. On the other hand, there are other medical devices, whether you want to call it a 510K or a de novo or a PMA or an HDE or whatever it is, I really could care less. Uh, there are other medical devices that in my opinion as a professional biomedical engineer do require clinical data, either because of the uh, pathophysiology, because of the newness of the technology, because of the risks, you know, what have you. So I'm a big fan of, uh, of doing what makes sense based on the biology and the engineering. And one of the examples I'll share with you, John, Um, I mentioned I do a lot of pre-subs at the FDA. Just last week, I have to be a little careful what I say here, but just last week, we took a medical device to the FDA as a a pre-sub. This was actually for a device already on the market. It's been on the market for about a dozen years. And the company would like to do a label expansion to add a, uh, a new indication to the product's label. Now, this particular device, John, it's not a permanent implant, but it is a device that goes inside a patient's body. Um, this has been used more than a million times, uh, both in the United States as well as around the world, more than a million times, including for this particular uh, use that we want to add to the label, because right now it's technically an off-label use. And yet we have in the literature about 700,000 reports of physicians using this particular device off label for this particular indication. So we're, the company is wanting to go to the FDA to update the label, um, in order to better reflect, you know, what physicians, what surgeons do in the real world. FDA is pushing back. They say they want clinical data in order to show this. And I said, with all due respect, what the hell can you possibly expect to find in a clinical trial that we don't already know with these you know, over a million uses, 700,000 alone for this particular off-label use. Anyway, part of the reason why I shared this story with you and your audience, John, is because after the meeting, keep in mind that many of the reviewers at FDA are personal friends of mine, you know, some of which we go back to graduate school uh, one of them shared with me, and I'm, you know, and, and again, I have to be very careful what I say here, that part of the reason why FDA is asking for this is being very cautious. Some people might even argue overly cautious is because of press like this particular documentary that we're talking about that just aired a few weeks ago. Um, FDA is painfully aware of the decisions that they make and the ramifications. You know, I often like to compare the FDA and the CIA because the FDA and the CIA are very similar in the sense that when the CIA does their job, nobody knows about it. When the CIA does not do their job, everybody knows about it. FDA is very similar, and these kinds of um, documentaries and uh, articles in the literature, and by the way, this particular documentary is absolutely not new. There have been uh, a laundry list of articles and other documentaries going back to the 1970s when fda first started regulating medical devices questioning you know the whole medical device uh, regulatory framework um anyway uh you know it's 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 absolutely nothing new so just because somebody watches a video like this and dismisses it because they think that it's one-sided or what have you there's two things that they got to remember first of all this is what the public is seeing because most you know Regular people they don't have the knowledge of our industry that you and I do, and second of all, it has ramifications on them whether they realize it or not whether they whether they want to admit it or not uh in part on how they're treated by the the regulatory agencies either here in the United States or perhaps even in other parts of the world as well
1: yeah that's that's helpful and and I think you know to kind of transition to to the next topic I wanted to explore a little bit um Let's talk a little bit about some of the systemic breakdowns uh, of these um, quality systems that uh, were in place at these companies because, um, to me, seeing or hearing these stories, I mean, that, there was that one device in particular. I think it said something like, in 2017, they had 12,000 <laughs> adverse events. And I'm like, are you kidding me? That's a lot. Um, and, and it... You know, for me, hold
0: on, John. I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt.
1: Once again, and you
0: and I have talked about this before. We have to be very, very careful about overgeneralizing. So you're exactly right. On the surface, 12,000 adverse events seems like an awful lot. But my question is what exactly were those for adverse sure. events? For sure. Some of them might be totally trivial. Sure. Know, others might be not, you know, so we just have to be careful about, uh, overly generalizing. I'm sorry, please continue. No,
1: I, I agree with you, but at, at the same time, you know, if, if, um, I guess I'll speak, you know, from my, my own opinion here that if, if I worked on a device that had, I'll just say a significant number of adverse events, uh, number one, uh, I would make, want to make sure that I did a thorough complaint investigation to understand why. And, you know, we don't know in this case if the company did or did not do uh, a thorough complaint investigation on all those events. We don't know. Uh, so John, we're are la- you
0: suggesting that a company should be required to you to do what, I, what you call a thorough investigation on each of those 12,000 uh, adverse events in that year alone?
1: Well, it depends on the situation for sure. Uh, Depends on what, like to your point, what what were the events? I mean, if, if it's uh, an, if event number one is something, you know, the first time that we've learned about this particular type of event, then absolutely I should do an investigation. But if, if it's something that has come to us before that we've already investigated, um, then perhaps not. I mean, the regulations are very clear that we need to investigate all complaints. It doesn't Say that you have to repeat an investigation over and over again if you have already investigated that particular issue. Um, well, I'll
0: give you a quick example from sure. my world right now, John. I'm working with a small company in California. Literally, as we speak, we just had this conversation a few days ago. In fact, they are, uh, long story short, in my opinion, doing all the right things from a regulatory and quality perspective. They're 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 good people. They're conscientious. They're not interested just in simply meeting the regulatory or quality requirements. You know, they do care about people's lives and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, on a very recent inspection, they got four uh, dings, uh, four uh, 483s, one of them being that uh, the company, and I actually advocate this strategy, the company has put together a fairly robust way to triage their complaints so that they can decide which complaints are worth um, you know to use your phrase a thorough investigation, and in which can more uh, you know can 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 be dismissed and anyway the uh, the the fDA uh, inspector said, no, you can't do that. you have to thoroughly investigate you know every single one and this is a small company, John you yeah. know we're not talking about twelve thousand uh, events per year, but nonetheless if 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 that's going to be the standard. Um, this company is probably not going to be able to stay in business Yeah. because, uh, and in my opinion, it just doesn't make sense to treat every problem as if it was equal. We have to have an investigation, yes, but we should not require a thorough investigation, whatever the word thorough means, of each and every one. There's got to be some common sense here.
1: Well, I agree. and And it seems to me that in that case that you decided... Uh, my opinion is that's an over-application of regulations. Um, that seems to me of an example of where more regulations are being applied when it's not uh, required. And and I think you know again I'm speculating here, but I think a lot of companies struggle with this in large part because you know the systems that they have in place. You know, if I've already investigated something. Uh, And I can, and a new event comes in that is just like uh, the the thing that I already investigated. If I can reference that, you know, you know, the 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 design of my quality system is going to be important. Where how I manage my documentation and records is is going to be important. And frankly, this is why we built Greenlight Guru EQMS software platform is to be a single source of truth, so that you don't have to do redundant, repetitive work that's already been done. You can simply link to and reference that information and connect those things together. I think that's important. Um, so, you know, that's one thing that, that I would challenge companies is make sure that you've built uh, a thorough, robust complaint handling process. But, you know, to, to Mike's point and, and that we're illustrating here is make sure that you've designed that. And even if you get a little bit of pushback from FDA reg, uh, regulatory agencies, you know, challenge that notion in a healthy way. Make sure that you're meeting, or actually exceeding, the intent of the regulation. And if you know you feel as though you're being uh, suggested to go uh, above and beyond, um, you know, something that's that's a bit overly burdensome, you know, that's something to to not just cave in and and accept as as the the rule. I mean, uh, do have a healthy understanding of how to apply the regulations.
0: Well, once again, John, you and I are singing exactly the same song, but perhaps in just a slightly different key. You know, what I'm suggesting here, you know, coming from a medical background myself, uh, you know, I used to say to my medical students, when a, when a patient presents to the emergency room, the first thing that's supposed to happen is they have a, a quick initial assessment. And if it looks like something, like a heart attack or ischemic stroke or, you know, something that's that's a major problem right away, they're obviously treated um, you know, right away. On the other hand, if they have a, you know, a splinter in their finger or something, you know, then they might be waiting around for hours. This is the whole concept of triage. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to apply here. Yeah. Um, because it's just not realistic, nor does it make sense to apply, you know, all of these regulations equally. And I'll share with you another example from just this past week. We had an FDA employee. I hadn't, I I won't say, you know, what level this person was, but this person was, you know, a fairly significant level within the FDA. Make the statement that regulation is regulation. There is no room for interpretation. This is somebody who is on the payroll at the FDA. uh, And, you know, those of us on the company side of the table, we're just all Shaking your heads, it's like, yeah. what did you say, and where did you work? Where do you <laughs> work? You know. <laughs> anyway, this is this is a problem,
1: <clears throat> for sure. And I and I think you know it's it's an you know companies can do themselves a service by by really truly understanding the the their interpretation of the regulations, uh, Part eight twenty, Part eight hundred three, Part eight hundred six, and so on as it applies to their products and processes. And folks, if, if you have any doubt about that, if you can reach out to folks like Mike, you can reach out to folks like me. You know, we've been through this and you know, neither Mike nor I have any interest in helping you implement overly burdensome systems. And we want you to meet the intent. We want you to make sure that the processes that you put in place improve the quality of life and ultimately uh, are addressing patient needs. That's, That's the whole premise. That's why we're in the medical device industry. And I like your point about triage. I mean, to say it a slightly different way, uh, this is really what is intended uh in like what thirteen forty five two thousand and sixteen talks about applying a risk based approach to your q m s applying a risk based approach to your complaint handling system is truly understanding uh the ramifications of the event uh, that 's come to your attention you know uh, not all events are created equal for sure, but for those significant Absolutely. event for those significant events i mean you know, the there was some discussion uh, in the documentary about the um, reporting MDR r- reporting uh, to the FDA, um, and there was I think there was even a statement that was made that I disagreed with. It um, made it sound as though it was voluntary across the board, and that's tr- that's absolutely not the case. So, um, any thoughts about some of the comments that were made about the MDR program?
0: Well, just to be clear, John, and you and I have talked about this uh, in in previous podcasts. Um, uh, voluntary reporting is, is, is uh, across the board is, is an incorrect statement. Companies are, so that I agree with you. Companies are required to report, uh, adverse events to the FDA. Uh, but those are obviously limited to the ones that they are aware of. Physicians, on the other hand, are not required to report problems. Let's not, Uh, parse words by talking about AEs or SAEs or whatever. Physicians are not, as a general rule, required to report problems. Perhaps they should be. But if they were, that's not something that FDA could require because FDA, after all, does not regulate the practice of medicine. Uh, One of the um, uh, interesting statistics in the documentary, uh, as a result of this, they said that only about 3 to 4% of adverse events are actually reported to the FDA. Now, I haven't fact-checked that particular statement, but I so can I, I, tell you- how would you know that? Make, you know, how would sorry? you know that? How so would you that's know? that's a good question, because it's like, how do you measure what you can't measure, <laughs> right? Uh, but it does make sense, why? Because there are similar statistics on the drug side of the world, that depending on the source, uh, maybe only eight to 10% of adverse events uh, associated with drugs are actually reported to the FDA and in this particular documentary they even suggested that for significant adverse events it might even be lower than that. So one thing that all of us in this industry have to keep in mind is we can only view the universe you know through our own particular set of eyeglasses we can only see what's visible to us or in this case what's reported to us just because there there are not problems associated with... uh, Sorry, let me say it this way. Just because there are not problems reported to you as a manufacturer about your medical device does not necessarily mean that there aren't problems. And I have suggested in some of the product liability law cases, lawsuits that I'm involved with, I have suggested that companies should not be passive in simply waiting for problems to be reported to them. For sure. Companies should actually be active uh, especially in very critical life supporting or life sustaining technologies where the company actually goes out and talks to their customers and says look are you having problems or can you tell us about you know the problems and so on so uh so this is an area where i think you know we can use some improvement as well although to be fair as you can imagine john it's a difficult sell to get a yeah. company to to do that because uh, you know why go looking for a problem? You know, but uh, but again, we have to be responsible professionals.
1: Well, and, and uh, there's two points I want to um, dive into just a little bit more depth on that based on what you just shared. First of all, this is a systemic issue where companies can improve. To your point, I think most companies are reacting to situations rather than than getting ahead of it and being proactive. And you know, it begs the question for those of you listening uh, who are in the industry. You know, do you want to be the subject of the next documentary about devices gone <laughs> bad? Uh, and if and if the answer is no, which I assume that it is, then I w- would encourage you to be more proactive and uh, and trying to identify potential issues before they become big deals. For sure, uh, that's my advice. The second thing that, that you 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 dropped it in a comment, but I it's surprising to me that how many people do not realize this. FDA does not have jurisdiction over physicians and the practice of medicine. Can you speak a moment about that?
0: Sure. Uh, Simply put, John, FDA, as I said, does not regulate the practice of medicine. That is, FDA cannot tell physicians what to do. They can only tell us, meaning industry, what to do. Um, And there are some exceptions. For example, if the practice of medicine is practiced by a person, that's true. However, if the practice of medicine is practiced by a device, then FDA is all over it. And I have countless examples where we have taken devices to the FDA that do absolutely nothing more than what physicians or surgeons have done themselves in the past. And yet FDA is very critical. They require uh, a lot of scrutiny of it because when when it's done by the surgeon, uh, him or herself, FDA has nothing to do with it. But when the uh, when the same thing is done by a device, FDA has everything to do with it. So right. so yeah so so FDA regulates the practice of medicine when it's practiced by a person, but uh, when it's not practiced by a person, all bets are off.
1: Yeah, so folks, just it's it's, it's interesting to think about, but realize that you, as a medical device company. You know, you, you know, your responsibility is to make sure that product is safe and effective, and ideally that the people are going to use it—the physicians, the clinicians, and so on—as uh, best as you possibly can. That it's uh, as obvious as as intuitive as possible. Um, but um, you know, and when you start to observe the product being used. Against the way you designed it or intended it, you know this is the time to be proactive. And and I'll leave exactly. that I'll leave that there for now because that's a whole different. Well, actually, topic.
0: John, I know we're coming close to the end. I would like to take that just a half a step further. Sure. Um, you know, one of the things that's boggled my mind in our industry for a long time is that we separate the F, uh, you know FDA regulates the medical devices that we make, but they do not regulate the procedures in which they're used because the procedure is the practice of medicine. But to me, you know, you shouldn't have to have a PhD in biomedical engineering John to to appreciate that that makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> no. You know, how can you separate the device from the procedure in which it's used? It just makes no sense. And yet we've been doing that for decades. And let me take that a step further back to the uh, to the documentary. So, you know, many of the devices that they featured were permanent implants and several of them uh when the implant uh, was causing problems it would be very difficult or perhaps even impossible to take that permanent implant out right so the question is you know what can we as engineers and as an industry do about this never mind a regulatory solution this to me is an engineering problem right so should we be required to um when a medical device, especially a permanent implant, comes to the market, whether it's a 510K de novo PMA, I don't care what, should the, should the manufacturer be required to provide some sort of a removal procedure? You know, obviously, they have to include an implantation procedure that's vetted, that's, that's validated either via a usability study or a clinical trial or both. Um, but what about the idea of, you know, having them uh, provide a removal procedure. Yeah. Hey, in case something happens, Dr. So-and-so, this is how you can get it out. Yeah. And uh, taking it even a tiny bit further, John, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this as well, on, on the technology side, there's been a growing, uh, or oh, sorry, there's been ongoing interest for several decades on designing devices to be uh, to be retrievable. So what's my definition of a retrievable device? And this has actually been adopted by CDRH uh, as their in-house definition. It's not in the CFR yet. Maybe someday I should live so long it might go in there. Um, but, uh, you know, every device can be retrieved. The question is how much effort should we, should we take to take it out? So my definition of a retrievable device is a device that requires no more effort to take it out than what was required to put it in. So if you're putting in a device minimally invasively with a laparoscope or an endoscope or a catheter, it should be able to be taken out minimally invasively yeah. as well. So that's an, another suggestion I would encourage our industry as well as the FDA to think about is maybe we should have uh, you know, a requirement for uh, having some sort of a retrieval, retrieval procedure or removal procedure that a surgeon um, can, can follow in the event that some kind of a problem occurs.
1: Definitely food for thought. So something to think about, and Mike, um, I know we're we're up on on the our time for today, but I thought, you know, kind of as a a parting uh, comment, um, do we need more regulation? I mean, <laughs> one of the things that was was hinted is that there's not enough regulations in place uh, for the medical device industry. So, like I said in the onset, I I have a pretty good idea of. Of where I think you stand on this topic, but I'll let you speak for yourself. Do we need more regulation in the medical <laughs> device industry?
0: Well, thank you, John. Uh, yeah, this is for for those of you in your audience that that don't know me. This might sound a little hypocritical. You're you're probably thinking this guy's a regulatory consultant, but so of course he's going to be a big fan of more regulation. Uh, nothing can be further from the truth. You know, when I started out in this business, John, a little over 25 years ago, as an R and D engineer we had a heck of a lot less regulation than we have today. The design controls did not even exist. You know, they went into effect in 1997. And yet somehow, I don't know how this happened, John, but somehow we were able to get reasonably safe and effective medical devices onto the market. Fast forward nearly 30, sorry, fast forward nearly three decades later, we have thousands and thousands of pages of regulation. But the question is, Are our devices really any safer or more effective? Is the world a better place? I'll leave that for your audience as a rhetorical question. But simply put, I don't believe that more regulation is the solution. Uh, as a matter of fact, some people have criticized, uh, our, you know, President Trump for the goal of, you know, for every one new regulation, two old regulations have to be removed. Um, I think that's, you know, I hear a lot of people, they, they they argue how much regulation. Some people say we don't have enough regulation. Other people say we have too much regulation. In my opinion, John, as an engineer looking at the root cause, I think that's the totally wrong question that we should be asking.
1: Totally wrong question.
0: question. I, I'm sorry?
1: No, I was just saying totally wrong question. Wrong yeah, language. Totally
0: wrong question. The, the question that I like to ask is of the regulation that we do have today, does it make sense? You know, uh, every week, almost every day, as a professional biomedical engineer, as well as a regulatory consultant, I read regulation that makes absolutely no sense. And yet people follow it anyway. You know, is that a problem with the system or is that a problem with us? So I'm a big fan of uh, having, you know, the right regulation. And I'm also a big fan of doing what makes sense, whether it happens to be required by FDA or not.
1: Yeah, that's that's a really good thought. And, and you know, folks. Um, really regulations aside as medical device professionals our responsibility is to make sure that the, the medical devices that we design develop and manufacture are safe and effective and meet the indications for use you know i, I know that's a a broad oversimplification but but as a medical device professional, that's what we need to do. We need to make sure that the easy products easy to say,
0: easy for the politicians to say, John. But those, <laughs> what do those words really mean in the real world?
1: Well, and that's the that's the art, you know, and and the art is making sure that you have designed the appropriate processes and implemented the appropriate systems, and have the the, the right level of, of education to understand what that means and to apply. Uh, that you know that uh, with everything that you do as a medical device professional, I mean, th- ask yourself the question: Is this a good decision for the patient? Um, that's, that's correct. The, that's the moral compass that I try to follow each and every day with everything that I do in the medical device industry. And I hope all of you listening are doing that a- as well. To Mike's earlier point, you know, if if you're just focused on compliance, that's the equivalent of a of a C student. We believe that as well at Greenlight Guru is why we have developed an EQMS software platform specifically for the medical device industry so that you can elevate your game to being an A student so that you can shift from just being focused on compliance and actually elevate and focus on true quality and and make sure that the products that you're designing, developing, manufacturing uh, are going to improve the quality of patients' lives. Mike, I appreciate you taking a few moments to chat with me today about this documentary. Folks, if you want to uh, learn more about how Mike Drews and his expertise uh, can be an asset to your company, I would encourage you to reach out to him at Vascular Sciences. And this has been John Spear, your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru. And you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.